I want to begin tonight by asking you a question. How often do you think about heaven? Not how often do you say the word heaven? When's the last time you heard the word heaven in a sermon and you just consider, you know, saying the word heaven, saying a gospel proclamation? But how often do you think about, and in light of the text of Scripture, imagine what heaven is going to be like? You know, in serving in ministry for many years, um, a lot of that time had been with students in times past, a lot of questions come up about heaven. I remember in student ministry, one of the most common questions that would come up would be, are we going to play sports in heaven? (laughs) And usually people would ask, you know, are we going to play football in heaven? For some reason, football came to mind about as much as anything. And then interestingly, golf came up too. Are we going to play golf in heaven? Maybe it was just the circles that I traveled in. Nobody, interestingly, ever asked me if we're going to play baseball in heaven. Maybe it's a sign of the times, so to speak, and people just assume we're not going to be playing baseball in heaven. Nobody has ever asked me if we're going to play basketball in heaven. Maybe everybody just assumes that we are going to do that. Sometimes when people ask questions about heaven, you know, and you've probably seen this happen, sometimes people can ask questions about heaven with a sense of disappointment. Are we just going to be praising God all the time in heaven? I couldn't believe, really just could not believe that uh, Randy Alcorn, he shared a story in his book on heaven about a pastor who had said to him, and I, I still can't believe it, I think you'll have this reaction too. He said, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather cease to exist when I die. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Watch watch what he goes on to say. Randy Alcorn asks him why, and he goes on to respond by saying, I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. And you're thinking, how is this guy in ministry? Like somebody explained to him what heaven is and what heaven is not. I hope Randy Alcorn sees that opportunity to do so. But it goes to show you that if you have a wrong understanding about heaven, there could be a lot of negative downstream effects that come from that. God has prepared so many things for His people. God has given us glimpses of the glory that awaits in the Word of God. And if you have a wrong view of of heaven, your excitement, your comfort, your encouragement in the here and now may all be dangerously diminished. So what I want to do, before we get into um, talking a little bit about the glimpses of glory, we kind of will get that on the front end as well, I want us to talk about some of the wrong views about heaven. I want you to imagine that if we're going to take off, as it were, and if we're going to survey a little bit this week and the Lord willing two weeks from now about what the Bible says about heaven, what we want to do is we want to clear the runway of some debris. There's a lot of debris on the runway. You have it in your mind. I have it in my mind. So what we want to do is we want to clear out some of that. So first, wrong view of heaven number one. This is kind of a catch-all. Because sometimes in light of the world in which we live, in light of the movies we've seen or the cartoons we've watched, we have a lot of strange views about heaven that we've carried over into our minds. Some people, when they imagine heaven... They have this kind of like unwanted advertisement-like pop-up that comes in their mind, in their minds, say like a little cherub that begins to float with a harp. No, no little of those things floating around in heaven with harps. That's not happening. Some people also just imagine heaven as kind of being like celestial nothingness. They imagine like a really white room 
with a really white mist and a really bright white haze. And that's what they think heaven is. Some people imagine, and you've seen this maybe in comic strips or things like that, some people imagine like St. Peter sitting at the gate, checking people's tickets, as it were, or their garments, right, their wedding garments, as they come to see whether or not he's going to let them in. Some people, and perhaps this is less popular, maybe this is just me projecting from my childhood, some people imagine it to be like those skyboards in Super Mario, that like, and have nice colors, and you're kind of bouncing from like place to place, and you can kind of do that in heaven. we got all kinds of weird views. And what I want to tell you in this catch-all right here is that that shouldn't be surprising to us. Because we live in a fallen world, we have fallen inclinations, we live in a world system that is misrepresenting views of heaven, and the father of lies, doubtless, has done his part to proliferate doctrines of demons with respect to heaven. In the book of Revelation, for instance, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 6, the beast of Revelation is described as opening his mouth to speak blasphemy against God, blaspheming His name, and also His tabernacle, i.e. His dwelling place, and those who dwell in heaven. And doubtless the dragon who gave authority to the beast has been diffusing lies about God, lies about His name, lies about His people, and lies about His dwelling place. Lies about heaven. So I say that to say this, Christian, you have to be vigilant. You've had so much of this stuff pumped into your mind over over the course of your lives. And you want to be vigilant to say, what does the Word of God actually say? And if I'm not excited about heaven, is it because I have been inundated with all of these lies? which doubtless would be part of the scheming of the father of lies. All right, wrong view and number two. Wrong view of heaven number two is that heaven as it exists now is the final destination of the believer. Now that may come as a surprise to you. Some of you hear that and you're like, wait a minute, where else are we going? I I thought we go to heaven and that's it. You know, when we die, we go to heaven and that's it. I want to remind you that's not it. That's part of it. It's a beautiful intermediate stop. So before we come to the new earth, before heaven and earth meet as it were, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22, when the new Jerusalem descends from above and heaven and earth are joined together and the tabernacle of God is with men and so on, the throne of God and of the Lamb is here, right here on a new earth. Before that, there's a beautiful stopover, if you will in the intermediate kingdom of heaven. So what I want to remind you of, even tonight as we consider heaven, is that heaven, as beautiful as it is now, and it is beautiful, we're going to get glimpses of it tonight. It's Jesus' Father's house. There are many dwelling places there. It's a vibrant city. We get glimpses of the throne room of God in Revelation 4. It's a beautiful place, but I want you to remember, you were made to have a resurrected body that's going to be on, if you will, a kind of resurrected earth. So remember, part of your understanding of heaven is to not confuse it with the eternal state, heaven as it is now. Don't confuse it with the eternal state. So we're going to consider heaven uh, this week, Lord willing, two weeks from now, and then we're going to get to consider it again, so to speak, when we consider the eternal state at the end of our eschatology study. All right, wrong view of heaven number three. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.9 states that heaven cannot be known about this side of eternity. So I can imagine, not that it's happening in this room, but I can imagine somebody hearing what I'm saying and thinking in their minds, objection! 
1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us we can't know. It hasn't even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So what are you going to say about heaven? You don't have much to say about heaven. Some people might even think, okay, you're either being willful or inadvertently neglectful of Deuteronomy 29.29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord. And the reason why such people would think such things is because they quote 1 Corinthians 2.9. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. And people say, that's it. That's, so you don't have to say anything about heaven. You can just say it's better than you can even imagine, and you can't even begin to imagine it. And what you want to tell such a person is just read on to the next verse. So many problems get solved when you just read the very next verse in Scripture. The very next verse says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. See, in the context leading up to 1 Corinthians 2.9, in the context leading up to that, the Apostle Paul was speaking about the wisdom of God, which he called, quote, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So 1 Corinthians 2.9 is not talking about God keeping things that He's revealed in His Word about heaven from His people, as though there's nothing in His Word revealed about heaven. It's talking about God revealing to His people His redemptive working through Christ. His salvation plan. That's the context. Because again, in verse 10, God says, He has revealed them to us through His Spirit. Saying that through the Apostle Paul. So a reference to 1 Corinthians 2.9 would not abbreviate our study on the doctrine of heaven. Uh, Wrong view number four. Uh, People don't wear clothes in heaven. (laughs) Now, interestingly... When my wife was in third grade, uh, there was a teacher who told the class of third grade students that when you go to heaven, nobody has clothes on. So my, my, my wife is a third grader, and she'll tell you this. this. This is what she said. She said, when I heard that, I didn't want to go there. She didn't want the alternative. And I, I don't know if she just kind of imagined like annihilationism as kind of a, a better option, but she didn't want that. As a child, she just said, that's weird. I don't want to do that. And I wonder how many people have heard something like that. And again, this could be answered very easily just by looking at the Scriptures. You look at the Scriptures in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, for instance, the martyrs in heaven are described as wearing robes. A white robe was given to each of them. Now, please, no. That's not to say that there aren't symbolic implications of the white robe. Namely, purity through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. But nonetheless, how are the saints pictured in heaven? They're pictured as being clothed with white robes. And as a matter of fact, to argue this even further, if you go in Revelation a little bit more, in Revelation 15, verse 6, for instance, we see angels are even described as being depicted with clothing. We're told that they were wearing, these seven angels in Revelation 15, pure white linen with golden sashes around their chests. Revelation 15, verse 6. That brings us to wrong view number 5. Wrong view number 5. There is no time 
in the present heaven. And I will even add a little bit of an adjacent wrong view. There's no time in the eternal state. Both of those views would be wrong. Now, as a popular hymn, uh, my family has heard me sing it in a Johnny Cash-style voice throughout the day. I won't do that to you, but <laughs> part of me wants to. Part of me wants, maybe during the Q&A time, if you ask me to, I will answer with, with doing that. Um, when the roll is called up yonder, right? The first line of that hymn says, When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. So a lot of people have gotten their theology from that old hymn. And they're like, okay, so there's going to come a point when we die, either in the intermediate heaven or in the eternal state, when time is no more. You can imagine how many Christians think that. And I want to tell you that's not true. First, let me tell you where that, I th- where that comes from, at least where I think it comes from. It comes from the hymn, but you say, where did the hymn get it from? I think the hymn got it from the King James rendering of Revelation chapter 10, verse 6. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, there's a phrase that says that there should be time no longer. Now, if you look in the New King James, for instance, we see that there's an angel who lifts up his right hand to heaven, Revelation 10, 5, and then he swore that there should be delay no longer. Delay no longer. That's the idea of the language there. Not that time will cease to exist, but that there will be no more delay with respect to the hastening of the culmination of events that lead to the return of Christ. That's what's going on. Not saying, okay, time doesn't exist anymore. Because if you go through the book of Revelation, you'll see that both in the intermediate heaven and in the eternal state, time does exist. First, Revelation chapter 6, for instance, you have the martyrs who are under the, th- under the altar praying to the living God saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they're mindful of time. How long? Revelation 6.10. It gets even clearer. Revelation 8.1. Remember John wrote, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then you say, even in the eternal state, we get a little glimpse of the fact that time continues to exist in the eternal state. Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So both in the intermediate heaven, the heaven that exists now, in the heavenly city there's time, and then in the new earth, when heaven and earth are joined, then you have the reality that time continues to exist even there, in the new heaven and new earth. Alright, wrong view number six. Believers do not go to heaven now. They are in a state, a current state of soul sleep, awaiting the resurrection. So this is the false teaching of soul sleep. That says believers, when they die, are in a state where they are basically not conscious. They're just waiting for the resurrection, and then they get woken up, as as it were, and then they are cognizant and aware of things again. Uh, Three points with respect to this. First, that language of sleep that you see in a place like 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, it's a euphemism for death. That's what it is. You see Jesus even use that euphemism in John's Gospel. In John chapter 11, for instance, right? Jesus said, John chapter 11, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. You read two verses later, and John says, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. 
So when you see different scriptural texts that talk about believers sleeping in Jesus or language like that, it's a euphemism, a kind of gentle description of death. Secondly, as we're going to see tonight, there's multiple passages in the New Testament that clearly teach that when a believer dies, they are absent from the body and what? Present with the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul spoke about dying and being with Christ. Right? And we'll talk more about that, Philippians 1, 23. Even the thief on the cross and the martyrs in Revelation 6, both of them are examples of how people don't go into a state of slow sleep. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The souls of the martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6, they are depicted not in a state of sleep, but as in a state of awareness, speaking to God, and so on. Third point would be this. And I say this because sometimes you might come across scriptures like what I'm about to reference to you, and you say, well, what about that, though? What about Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5? That, in that verse, at least part of it, we're told, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. What I want to remind you of is when you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, you are getting an under-the-sun view, contrasted with an under-heaven view. A kind of earthbound view. What does it look like? What is life like under the sun? Remember, under the sun, everything is vanity. But there's a purpose for everything under heaven. It's as though the writer, who I think is Solomon, is trying to give the perspective of saying, look, this world is futile if you're trying to find satisfaction in it ultimately. You have an under the sun kind of view. And so from an under the sun perspective, it looks like when the dead die, they know nothing. It's like, that's, that's it. Now remember, there are statements like this in Ecclesiastes. One of my favorite illustrations of this, and I'll share it with you, and then we'll get right back to um, the wrong views. Ecclesiastes 10.19, listen to this. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Some people are like, there's my life verse right there. But money answers everything. And no, 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 you don't want that to be your life verse because that's an under-the-sun view. That's what it looks like. It looks like if somebody has money, they can get things done. Maybe they can bribe people and take advantage of certain opportunities and so on. That's an under-the-sun view. So is Ecclesiastes 9.5. That when the dead die, it looks like they know nothing. It looks like that's it. It's an under-the-sun view, but there's so much more. Um, You got another example that I could reference? I would point you to the message that I preached on the Psalms, Psalm 6. I think it's a message called Out of the Depths. Psalm 6, verse 5 would be another text that people would take out of context to argue for soul sleep, but you already have a clear um, argumentation there that that's not a biblical view at all. Completely wrong. Wrong view number seven. Purgatory is an intermediate state where believers go to be purified before going to the intermediate state of heaven. So in, in a Roman Catholic view, there's an intermediate state before the intermediate state. That you have to undergo some further purification before you get into heaven if you're not perfectly ready to enter into heaven. Don't take my word for it. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that explicitly. If you wanted to look, and we went through this in our class on Roman Catholicism, uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1030 to 1032 speak very plainly about purgatory. I'm going to read one paragraph to you. It's short, the expression here. Uh, Paragraph 1030. It says, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification 
so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So that's a Roman Catholic view. And the problems with that view are legion, for they are many. Now the first one would be this. When you go through the scriptures over and over again, we're told that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. From all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9. That Christ redeemed us from every lawless deed, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. So this idea of undergoing some further purifying work as though the blood of Christ was not sufficient enough is blasphemous. And it's unbiblical. It contradicts the picture that's routinely and repeatedly painted in Scripture concerning Christ's work. Again, also note this. You don't have any example in the Scripture of believers going to this place. You have examples over and over again of Paul telling believers in general, right? 2 Corinthians 5, Philippians chapter 1, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, to die is to end up being immediately with Christ. That's the picture that's painted for all believers. And then third, the Bible just clearly does not teach purgatory. It's nowhere in the Scriptures. Nowhere in the Scriptures. Um, Wrong view number eight. There's no learning in the present heaven. And I'll even build upon that. There's no learning in the eternal state. I think those are two wrong views as well. In the intermediate state, for instance, right? The heaven that exists now. Before the new heaven and the new earth comes and heaven is joined to earth as it were. Before that happens, even now, we see, again, talking about those martyrs in Revelation 6, them saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true? So they're asking a question. They don't have this perfect knowledge of when the culmination that they're awaiting is going to happen and the judgment and return of Christ and so on is going to happen. Now, I do want to say this. This will be helpful. Although we will, at that point in time, not see through a glass darkly, right? We will know fully. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. But I'm going to say a couple things about that. First, that knowing fully does not mean that we as creatures will have an infinite knowledge of God as though we can know Him exhaustively. We will still be finite. God is infinite. And part of the joy of heaven, I would say the apex of heaven, is searching the unsearchable riches of His greatness, or His unsearchable greatness, Psalm 145, verse 3, for all of eternity. For all of eternity, you will continue to find out more and more about how great God is. You're not going to know fully in the sense of, I know how great God is. I've exhausted His infinitude. It's not happening. You're going to be thrilled with Him forever. You're not going to have to manufacture it. He is infinitely great. You'll keep discovering how great He is. But furthermore, and I think this is helpful, uh, you have this expression that I think helps us understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. He says there, But then I shall know just as I am also known. And according to Albert Barnes, and I think this makes sense, that does not relate to the extent, but to the manner and the comparative clearness of the knowledge. In other words, the knowledge that we're going to have at that moment is a face-to-face knowledge. It's not talking about exhaustive knowledge as though the finite becomes infinite. It's talking about a face-to-face. You're not going to see through a glass darkly anymore. What you know, you will know clearly. Not in some kind of blurry, hazy way through a glass darkly. You will know what you know clearly. 
but you will not know everything exhaustively. Part of the joy of heaven, I've told you this before, I agree with Jonathan Edwards, that heaven is a place of ever-increasing joy. Because as, for instance, you come to know more and more about who God is, you are going to rejoice in that. But I would even say, just learning in heaven, learning more and more is going to be a joy that you are going to have. And again, I think lies and misunderstandings about the scriptures can steal some of our anticipation of that joy. So those are some wrong views. What I want to do briefly here is just give us some of the, the basics of heaven. I don't want to take this for granted, so let me just lay a little bit of groundwork, say a few things about the basics of heaven, and then give you some glimpses of the glory of heaven. As far as the basics goes, um, heaven, as defined by Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, I think it's a great concise definition, he says, heaven is the place where God most fully makes his presence makes known His presence to bless. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But heaven, and I love the definition, is where God most fully makes His presence, makes known His presence to bless. To go on, Grudem says, during this present age, the place where God dwells is frequently called heaven in Scripture. The Lord says, heaven is my throne. Isaiah 66 verse 1. And Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Matthew 6, 9. Jesus has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. So when you think of heaven, you are thinking that it is the place where God most fully makes His presence known to bless. Furthermore, and I don't want to take this for granted, you know it's an actual place. There's a throne there. Jesus, who has a human glorified physical body is at the right hand of the Father. It's a bustling city, if you will. It's a real place. It's the place from which angels come. It's the place to which angels go. It is a real locale. It's often understood as the third heaven, and the reason for that is because of Paul's reference in 2 Corinthians 12. So if you hear third heaven, you're like, I thought there was like one heaven. Well, There's one heaven in the sense of where God's throne is, but the Bible speaks of three heavens. The first heaven would be the atmospheric heaven. It's the sky, for instance. Right? Paul, um, when he was in uh, Lystra, said, He did good, speaking of God, by giving you rains from heaven. So when you look up, you get the first glimpse of like the the first heaven. And then you have, beyond that, the celestial heaven, the place where the moon, the stars, the sun, and the planetary bodies are. And then the third heaven is that place that Paul was caught up to and called paradise. It's the place where God's throne is. Now, if you want to get amazed by how great God is, please know, the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven are not enough to contain the infinite God. He fills all. He does. He's omnipresent. He's ubiquitous. He's fully present everywhere that He is. But at the same time, He is infinite. Remember the language that Solomon used in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, when he said, Behold, heaven and the heaven of the heavens cannot contain you. He's so great, He can't be relegated to creation. That's how awesome this God is. And there's additional evidence that heaven is a place. It's not like that 80s song. Uh, It's not a place on earth. 
Um, one day in a renewed earth, you might say, when heaven and earth are joined, um, but it's not now. Uh, heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is a real place. And with that said, I want to give you, for our remaining time, and again, two weeks from tonight, we will come back and consider this subject more. I want to give you some glimpses, some glimpses of heaven. And the first place to start, I don't know a better place to start than this. Heaven is the place where Jesus is. That's where you start. And James Beakey uh, tells a story that I've come to love, and I've shared it quite a few times since, um, since reading it, of a church elder who had visited an older um, dying woman, uh, a saint, who was going home to be with the Lord, and then he visited her, and he said to her, shall I read to you the most beautiful verse in the Bible? And she said, yes, certainly. So he went on to read John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And the woman goes on, and she basically says, no, no, no. The next verse is yet more beautiful. Please read on. And so then he goes on and he reads, and he says, reading from the words of Jesus, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. That, said the woman, is more beautiful. It's not the mansion I desire, but the Savior. And that's what should get us the most fired up about heaven. Seeing our Savior. That's what makes heaven heaven. To be in the presence of our God and Father. To be in the presence of our Savior and our Redeemer. That's what we long for above all things. Think about Paul. When Paul was talking about the heaven that is right now, he kept focusing on the fact that Jesus is there. Think of Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, where he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there's so many reasons why dying is gain. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, more in two weeks. There's a whole bunch of reasons. But the greatest of reasons is found in what he says in verse 23. He goes on first in verse 22 and he says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And not just far better than the worst that you can experience in this world. It's far better than the best that you can experience in this world. Being with Christ. Remember Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There's a lot you can say about that. We are confident. Well pleased, like, like, we, like we would long for that. It's going to be far better. But I want you to note that he says we are confident. Confident. That Greek word that's used there for confident is the word thoreo. It can also mean to be courageous. It can mean to be of good courage. I think you might say that the confidence that believers ought to have in light of where they're going should spur on courage, especially when they face that enemy called death. I mean, looking at death and just hoping that there's something good on the other side and not something bad won't inspire much confidence. People aren't looking to roll the dice with their eternity. But a Christian doesn't have to. The Christian can look and know what's on the other side of death with confidence. 
A Christian can be like Robert Bruce, that minister that John Whitecross spoke of, who, while he was eating breakfast with his daughter, he knew death was on the horizon. He asked his daughter for an egg or eggs, and she brought it to him, and he asked for a little bit more, another egg, but then somehow, in some, for some way, I guess something that was going on in his body or his mind or his heart, he knew that death was imminent. And he told her, hold, daughter, hold, my master calls me. And as he says that, his sight fails him. He called for the Bible and he told her, turn to the eighth chapter of the Romans and set my finger on the words, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, etc. shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. So she did that. She got the Bible. Takes his hand. He asks her, now is my finger upon them? She told him that it was. And then he said, now, God be with you, my dear children. I have breakfast with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ this night. And then he died. It was the way that Joseph Addison, who when he knew that death was on the horizon, he dismissed the physicians. He knew death was coming. And he requests that his stepson would be brought to him. His stepson comes to him and says, Dear sir, you sent for me, I believe. I hope you have some commands. He guess he was anticipating some last wishes to be communicated to him. And all that happens in that moment is that Joseph Addison takes the hand of his stepson, forcibly grasps it, and then tells him, See in what peace a Christian can die. And you know how you can do that? Because you know what's on the other side of death. The Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know He died so that you wouldn't have to fear death. He died so that you might live forever with Him. He took your punishment so that you could joyfully and peacefully be absent from the body and know that you are going to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. Heaven, current state, it's a place of rest. Heaven, current state, is described as paradise. Remember Jesus told the thief, today you shall be with me in paradise. Paul described it as paradise. He was caught up into paradise. It's home. You know, that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, verse that I read to you before, there's a more literal rendering of it that I'm going to read to you now. It says, now we are confident and pleased rather to be absent from the body or absent out of the body and to be at home with the Lord. To be at home with the Lord. You know, sometimes I think believers, when they think about heaven, they kind of maybe have a little bit of fear, like it's going to feel so weird and strange and daunting. And I think every believer will be so surprised at how much it feels like home. You know that feeling if you've ever traveled somewhere and all of a sudden you just can't wait to get home and you open the door and you open the door and you're like, oh, it's so good to be home. And I think there's going to be that sense when believers are absent from the body in the presence of the Lord, they're going to feel as though for the first time they are truly home. I think that's a good connoting, a good rendering of the language because Paul does use that kind of language, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, while we are at home in the body. And the same words used in 2 Corinthians 5.8. So those are some of the reasons why I would say, see it as home. Uh, Luke 16, verse 9. Remember Jesus said, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, 
that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. It's not only home for us, and I know ultimately we see that in light of the fact that the new Jerusalem will be joined to earth in the new earth and so on. Um, but it's also our home country, if you will. It's where our citizenship is, right? Philippians chapter 3. It's part of the way we're supposed to live in the here and now. Think of the patriarchs. Think of those saints uh, like, like Abraham. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Do you want to be of the greatest earthly good that you could be? Then be as heavenly minded as you could be. The more that your mind is in a right way, a biblical way, set on things above, and you know this isn't your home, the more you're going to live to glorify your king who is there, to store up treasures there, because you know your inheritance is there. You know your family, a whole bunch of them, are already there. You know that's going to be the place where you're going to get to join with angels and saints and worship the Lord. You know that is coming so you can give your life more freely, as it were, in the here and now, and not cleave so much to the things of this world. It's a heavenly city. Now, Lord willing, more about this in two weeks. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Remember, those saints who are in heaven, they don't have their glorified bodies yet. They are spirits of just men and women made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I, maybe part of it is my affinity um, that developed going to school in the city. I love, even to this day, going into the city. My heart breaks for the city. My heart breaks for it and seeing, obviously, lost humanity, whether it's lost humanity in 2003 or lost humanity when I first became a Christian and knew that there was such a thing as lost humanity, my heart broke then as well. But there's something, when you come out of the Battery Tunnel, for instance, and you see the Freedom Tower and you see the buildings, and you're like, wow, like God's creations, fallen human beings developed this city. I've thought about that one. Going to, it doesn't have to be New York City. It could be like Tennessee or Charlotte. And you're just like, wow, this is, this is beautiful. Maybe not everybody thinks it's beautiful, but I happen to think it's beautiful. But it can't compare with a city whose builder and maker is God. Imagine what that's going to look like. You've seen what fallen created beings can create. And you should be excited to think about what redeemed created beings will be able to create in the new earth, with angels, with resources, in the presence of God. But you haven't seen what the uncreated creator has created in heaven. You get glimpses of it. You haven't seen that city. And one of the other things I think about too, when you go in the city, I thought about this actually on Highland Boulevard, but you can apply it to the city as well. I'm driving down Highland Boulevard earlier in the week, and I'm just seeing some like, people like walk outside. You know, some people are waiting at the bus stop. Some people are taking out the garbage and so on and bringing it in from the previous night. And I'm thinking, how amazing it would be if like, I knew everybody. 
Like, like imagine it's like, hey, what's going on? Hey, what's going on? You're, you're just driving down the street. Hey, oh, good to see you. Good to see you. And not that you may know everybody in the exact same way to the exact same degree, but think about it. It gives us a little glimpse of what it's like. Imagine going to New York City, right? Prime time with so many people in certain parts of the city, and all of a sudden you're walking and you know everybody, or at least you know that everybody's family. Imagine you get a little glimpse of what it's like for those saints who are in heaven now, in the heavenly city with all family, and what it will be like for you, and what it will ultimately be like in the new earth. This place is also a place of singing. If you've ever been to a Christian concert that you've really enjoyed, it's got nothing on this place. And you're like, I've been to some beautiful venues, George. You haven't been to the throne room of God. <laughs> Look at Revelation 4. That's the throne room of God. The beacon has nothing on the throne room of God. Amazing. Imagine what that's going to be like. And you'll have the capacity to raise your voice. Sometimes people just imagine heaven as everything being kind of stagnant and so on. No. We saw even in Revelation 6 that they could shout with a loud voice or speak with a loud voice. And knowing that in certain contexts when the saints are singing, you'll be able to express passion and joy and exuberance as you sing right before the presence of God in the Lamb. Amazing place. So much more that I could say about this place, but I'll close for tonight with saying this. Make sure you know the way to this place. If you want to get there, there's only one way to get there. His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You see Him as the only way of salvation, that there's no other name, only His No one could absorb the wrath of God. He did it. He rose from the grave. You see Him as the way. You turn from your sin, and by grace alone, through faith alone, you believe the gospel, and you have peace with God, and you know that you are on the way to where He is. He's with you now, and yet at the same time, He's bringing you where He is. Let's pray. Father, thank You for such amazing glimpses of the glorious kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you have prepared and what you have revealed. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to seek and think about things above. And that in light of seeking and thinking about things above, that our hearts and affections would be set on our homeland. And that you would help us, Heavenly Father, to do even more earthly good as we leverage our lives for the gospel of your Son, in light of the kingdom that you've prepared for those who love you by your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.